The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your mercy. We're grateful for your kindness and your grace. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the goodness of your word and that it is given to us so that we may know you and have faith in you, delight in you, uh, work for you. So God, fill us uh, with your life-giving spirit that we may understand and apply your word, receive your grace, um, and hold fast to the truth that you have given to us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Today we are um, looking at John the Baptist. The Baptist meets the Messiah. Uh, I wonder if someone could, it has a Bible, did someone bring their own Bible? They put a finger on 2 Kings chapter 1 for me. I might get you to read it in just a little bit. Um, so Jim's got it, 2 Kings chapter 1. But I want, I want you to help me out. I'm just asking everyone. Um, because I get lost in the nerdiness of this sometimes. Uh, particularly in, um, uh, particularly in, in the Old Testament fulfillment and, and the, the language and stuff like that. Uh, the point of this study is that you should know exactly how each piece helps grow our faith or helps you live your faith. Right? That's, that's really important. And so if that gets lost in my sort of nerdy fascinations, would you hold me accountable and just raise your hand and say, all right, so what? Uh, what, what does this mean for me or to me? Can you do that for me? Yeah? All right, thank you. Paula will. All right, so what... Do you know about John the Baptist? What do you know about John the Baptist? He was a cousin of Jesus. He was a cousin of Jesus. Yeah. Was he a ascetic? Pardon me? Ascetic? The Jews that, you know, they did. No, oh, Nazarite. Nazarite. Yeah, yes, he was a Nazarite. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's right. And we know all that from Luke, uh, Luke's gospel. That's right. He's about six months older. It seems like he was probably about six months older, yeah, than than Jesus. Anybody else? What do you want to know about John the Baptist? Why did he wear, why was he so odd? Why was he so strange? We are going to get to that, yes. Why did he, like, wear the camel's hair and all, and and why did he just wear a tunic like everybody else? We're going to get to that, perfect. What else? All right. Well, maybe you'll uh, come up with some questions. And if you do, please stop me and raise your hand. So John the Baptist is mentioned in all four Gospels and, in fact, has a speaking role in all four Gospels. And if you actually stop to think about it, those with a speaking role in all four Gospels are pretty, it's a pretty narrow crowd. Certainly Jesus and Peter Maybe Pontius Pilate. I have to go back and look. I really haven't given much thought, but but John the Baptist is is one of just a very small handful that has a speaking role in all four Gospels. He's highlighted here in Matthew. He gets all of chapter 3 and also gets a a large chunk of chapter 11. Um, And he's also highlighted, particularly his birth, the birth narrative is is highlighted in Luke chapter 1. So before we read this passage, I want to show you something that I think is actually quite fascinating, just about how the Lord orchestrated all of this. 
particularly with the messenger who prepares the way uh, of the Lord. So if you were, if you had a Bible in your hand and you flipped back literally two pages, you would come to uh, Malachi chapter 4. And Malachi, is the very, Malachi 4 is the very end of the Old Testament. And I want to read to you Malachi 4, the very last thing that anybody would have heard. Remember, there was 400 years of silent, prophetic silence. Uh, and there's a lot of intertestamental, I mean, between the Testaments, there's a lot of intertestamental history that I don't really know a lot about with that, to do with the Maccabees and the revolts and everything. But I don't know a lot about that. But this is the last prophetic word that anyone would have heard. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. You're that good prophet. The day, that, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, and that's S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So there's a difference between the unfaithful uh, that will be made stubble and the faithful that will go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. So there's a difference between the unfaithful and the faithful. Remember the commandments. Just walk in faithfulness. Behold, here's verse 5. This is the 5 and 6. There's only six verses in the whole chapter. Here's the last two verses of the whole Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Period. End of Old Testament. I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the day the Lord comes. 400 years later, let's flip over to Luke chapter 1. The Jews are minding their own business, doing what they do in their religion. And there was a man named Zechariah who was a priest, and he had a wife named Elizabeth. You can imagine they're just going along, they just, I mean, they just do what they do, right? I mean, they're just, they're not, it's been 400 years of silence. Nobody's expecting that today's going to be any different than yesterday was. And, and Zechariah's um, division of priests, he was in the division of Abijah, you don't need to know that, but his division was selected by Lot uh, to go in to uh, the house of the temple of the Lord and burn incense before the Lord. And so, and Zechariah was the one taken out of that division by Lot to go in and burn the incense. It was, you only went in by yourself. And, you know, you can imagine, just like they've done for the last 400 some years or more, uh, they, he was expected to go in, light the stuff, and incense comes up, and he walks out. 
And you know how like you walk into the kitchen and, and your family member is in there, but you don't expect you turn on the lights and it scares the heck out of you, right? But then you see who it is and you just start laughing. Like that all happens immediately. But if it was somebody that you didn't recognize, your heart would just melt, right? You would just, you're, you would jump in your throat and you would scream and, or, or scream again or whatever, however, however that was. And it was more like that because... Zechariah walks in to burn the incense for the Holy of Holies and he realizes that he is not alone. And, uh, and he is, in fact, there is an angel of the Lord there with, um, uh, there with him. And he is really, really scared. And you can imagine. So, I mean, anytime that the angel of the Lord appears to anyone throughout the Old Testament or even in the New Testament, the automatic response is to fall down, right, and, and worship, but, but just fall down in, in utter fear for, for what is, is happening. And so he goes in, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled, <laughs> that's an understatement, when he saw him, and fear fell upon him, and the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Now, she, they were both well beyond childbearing years at this point and did not have any children. She will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the Nazarite vow that you were talking about, Susie. <coughs> And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will, here, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the dis disobedient to the wisdom of the just. So exactly, the, remember the last thing that was said prophetically in Malachi, he will, he, I will send you Elijah and you will... Uh, and, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to the children. And then the very next thing that happens, so this is the first thing that would have happened chronologically, is, you know, it comes Luke's third gospel. It's the first thing that happens chronologically uh, in the New Testament. And the angel appears and says, your son's going to be John, and he's going to be in the spirit of Elijah, and he's going to turn the uh, heart, hearts of uh, fathers to their children, and children to their fathers. So, um, so what we see is there's incredible continuity. And uh, Matthew doesn't tell the story like Luke does, but he picks up exactly um, the story uh, as well. So they were expecting Elijah. I mean, that's, that's, that, is, that would not have been new. In fact, we see um, people ask because they're saying, oh, is, is Jesus, maybe perhaps, remember what Jesus said, what are they saying about me? Some say you're Elijah. I mean, some say you're not probably the Messiah, but you're the one preparing the way for the Messiah. Um, and then actually Jesus, we hear in, in chapter 11, uh, says that John the Baptist is Elijah. They, they, were, uh, they were expecting Elijah to come. Do the Jews believe that now? No, I don't think they would believe that John the Baptist was the one in the spirit of Elijah. I think that's probably a particularly Christian belief. Yes, Charlotte. But in the Seder, to this day... They put a seat for Elijah. Yes, that's right. They expect Elijah. They'll leave a they'll leave a seat open, uh -huh. usually with a wink. You know, I don't think they expect yeah, that he's actually going to show up. You know, but the door. they have a have a have a place. Elijah is going to come. Yeah, 
I'm not, I mean, so I don't know, but maybe you know, I've, I've always heard that, but I've, it, it comes off more to me like Santa Claus than anything else. Like, I don't know that they, but I, but I don't know. But I, I really, maybe, does anybody know? I don't know. In those days, so let's, let's look at the text. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. There goes Matthew again looking at Old Testament fulfillment. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and leather belt, a leather belt around his waist, and he had bad breath because his food was locusts and wild honey, and he didn't wear deodorant. He, it just seems like a really strange, strange person. Then... And yet, maybe this is the secret to church growth right here. Because all, uh, I'm going to quit using deodorant, grow out my beard, and wear camel's hair. All Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him, by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now it says, in those days. So this is actually, you know, so there's chapter 2. Wise men uh, flight to Egypt, return from Egypt. 25 years later, in those days, is what it says. So it's not right after he comes back, uh, we know, from, uh, from Egypt, but it's 25 years later. It, those days may refer something to, like those, those, in those days of fulfillment. You know, lots, God was fulfilling the scriptures in those days, in those days. We're going to look at verses, and this is the order we're going to look at. Verse 4, 3, 2, and then 5. We're gonna, it'll make sense. We're going to kind of... Start with verse 4, work backwards, and then see how he pulls it together in verse 5. Verse 4, camel's hair and leather belt. Why, why did he look like this? All right, Jim, read out loud, project, read out loud, 2 Kings 1, no, let's see, where am I? Uh, 5 through 8. Let me, let me get there myself. I think that's right. 2 Kings 5 through 8, go. When messengers returned to the king, he asked them, why have you come back? A man came to meet us, they replied, and he said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and tell him, This is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending men to consult Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. It will. So we got two more verses, but you have this sort of surly prophet out in the wilderness. Two more verses, seven and eight. The king asked them, "What kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this?" They replied, "He was a man with a garment of hair, with a leather belt around his waist." The king said, "That was Elijah the Tishbite." So the description of Elijah. In First Kings, is he's wearing a garment of hair, camel's hair, and wearing a leather belt around his waist. So Matthew is signaling to us by describing John this way that this is Elijah. That's that's what's going on. He is he is the one um, who is coming. This very explicit. Now Jesus is going to say it uh, explicitly in in chapter eleven, but Matthew is signaling to the, to his readers. Who would have been mostly Jewish and would have would have thought, wait a second, isn't that what Elijah also 
war. So that's verse 4. Verse 3, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Let me read to you. It's just so beautiful. So this Isaiah 40, you may know uh, that Isaiah 40 represents a turn in the book of Isaiah. Uh, there's 65 chapters in, in Isaiah, so it's a long prophetic work. The first 39 chapters are gloom and doom. There's definitely some hope uh, woven through there. But it's basically saying, uh, you are going to, to experience judgment if you don't shape up. And of course, they don't shape up. And they're like, oh, you keep saying that. It goes on. And it goes on for years and years and years. And of course. And then judgment comes. And so Isaiah 40 now is speaking to those who are in exile. And it's saying it's not always going to be like this. And it begins, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. It's just such a, it's so pastoral. After 39 chapters of, y'all, you're going, you're going to Babylon, you're going to Sheol, uh, you're going to any, any other, any place that's not good um, because of your behavior. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What that means is um, the, there was a piece of paper that they wrote the sins on and doubled it over and threw it away. So when it says you've received double for all your sins, it doesn't mean you got twice what you deserve. It means that the, the penalties doubled up in the paper and thrown away. It's put away. A voice, and then, and then it, the very next line, the voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight, the desert, a highway for our God, and every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places made plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God is speaking through Isaiah to a people who are in despair and need help. And he's saying there. So he's, he's speaking to the people and saying, um, prepare the way of the Lord, uh, a voice of cry in the wilderness. And you can see when, um, when Cyrus decreed, it was like 70 years later, when King Cyrus decreed that the Israelites could leave Babylon and go back and they built, rebuilt the wall and all this. You can see that they would say, look at this and think, oh, it's, it's being fulfilled. But actually, come on in. Actually, they, um, they were... Uh, the, the prophet would have spoken better than he knew uh, in, a, in a sense that it was sort of doubly fulfilled in Christ. Also in a time where people were in despair, they hadn't heard in so long from, from the Lord, and there's a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And what is so interesting to me is, um, is that this idea that Matthew doesn't bring in particularly, but in this passage that he quotes from, that every valley will be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be made low. And if you think about the, how this, it's a leveling. So everyone who is low will be lifted up and everyone who is high will be brought down. But you're put on the same plane. All the uneven places will be made plain. And, and I just think, always think about how the gospel does that for us. That it lifts us uh, who are uh, crushed it, it, um, in our sense of unworthiness, in our despair, in our grief or guilt or shame or whatever. Whoa, whoa. 
That's so weird. That's right. Keep going, Lord. Stop, Lord. That is in the I have no idea. This sounds like one of those. In those days. I'm not being pumped. In those days, the voice of the Lord came through the alarm system. Uh, Alright, so. And return. So the gospel lifts our spirits to the heights. We're crushed low. But if we are on our high horse, if we are uh, prideful, if we are trusting in our own good works and righteousness, if we uh, need to be brought down a little bit, if we put ourselves on a pedestal. The gospel does that too. The gospel says you are not worthy. You're made worthy in Christ, but you're not worthy on your own. For those who know they're not worthy, you said you are made worthy. It's, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? And, and it's not meant to to cut down, to, to tear down permanently, but to, to the gospel levels the playing field. And, the, um, and it is just, we're all standing on the same ground before the Lord. And I just think there's, there's a great wonder to that. And, and, a, and, a, and a great reason to, to praise and worship uh, the Lord for this gospel. It says, I'm sending you a messenger before you who will herald the gospel and before the one who will actually be the gospel. And, and, and in this process, uh, those who are in despair will be lifted up, and those who are uh, on a pedestal will be brought low, and everyone will be standing uh, on equal footing before the Lord. And that was just as true then as it is today. That not one of us stands before the Lord on our own merit. We pray that in the, uh, in the Eucharistic prayer, that, that you would not uh, be judged by our own merit, but by uh, faith in the blood of Christ. And that's not the exact words, but that's, um, it, it is just, it, it's a, I hope this, I mean, if you don't hear anything else, just remember again that the gospel just humbles us, uh, crushes us uh, off of our pedestal, and lifts us up where we are in despair. Um, so, back to Matthew. So that's, we've looked at four. He was wearing the, the same thing, the same sorts of, of clothing that Elijah was. He was the voice in the wilderness. And he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we were going to, we're going to see that Jesus actually said, this is his opening line too. But let me ask you, uh, Elijah has come now, preparing the way for the Lord, and his ministry is a call to repentance. What is repentance? What is... It is... Going back. Okay, so we've got being sorry and going back. We've got metanoia, which that's you're nerdy, right? That's that's nerdiness. We've got a turning, right? That's what metanoia means in Greek. Is is a is a an about face. It's an about face. Yeah, you come from a Lutheran background. That's good. Um, Typically, when you hear the call to repent, you hear the call. Quit doing bad stuff. Get your act together. But actually, I think repentance is actually, that's that's a surface level definition. There's an old preacher named 
Harry Ironside. Maybe you've read commentary or heard some sermons by him. It's kind of a Calvin. It's kind of a, but but I love this. He wrote, "Repentance is the recognition of God's estimate." In other words, repentance is is recognizing what God has seen to be true. God's estimate of the hopeless character of our hearts until we we are renewed by word and spirit. Repentance is the recognition that what God has said about us is true, that our character is hopeless uh, until we are renewed by the word and the spirit. He says, grapes cannot be gathered from a thorn bush nor figs from thistles. Grapes can't be gathered from a thorn bush or figs from thistles. It is not the fruit that must be dealt with. The tree must be removed. That's what repentance is. Right? So Christianity is not a religion of reform, which is to say a religion that's just, you know, you're pretty good, but you could be a little better. If I get better, then I'll be accepted. That's that's the religion of reform. It is a relationship of death and resurrection. We the tree must be removed, not fertilized, taken out, and replaced. This is what Paul means in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That repentance is to be at the end of your rope and to say, no longer I, but you, Lord. No longer I, but you, Lord. And so, um, as, as one of my friends said, and it, gosh, he's, he's gotten a lot of traffic off of this, um, uh, that God's office is at the end of our rope. That's where, that's where he meets us. So, um, I've been crucified with Christ. I, this is a, a daily dying to self. doesn't mean you've actually died, of course. Um, of course, you, when you die, you'll have eternal life with Christ by faith. But every day, we're coming to the end of our own rope and our own estimation of our, of our worthiness. And what is amazing to me, I mean, some people are kind of allergic to this idea that we're unworthy. But actually, when I, when I see people embrace it and the mercy of Christ, they are so joyful. And I've been parts of, of, of churches that was just are so joyful, and they're all convinced they're total sinners without the grace of, and without the grace of God, they're going to hell. They don't feel any shame in that. It is they have what we might call a low anthropology. Um, that is a low estimation of humanity before God. Uh, doesn't mean you're not amazing people. It just means that before God, we're not worthy. But what, the, what is actually grace about grace, what is gracious about it, is that He takes those of us who are not worthy and makes us worthy. And we'll see that in, in the baptism of, of Jesus. So sometimes people get alerted to that. But I, I, hope, when you, when I hear, hope that you hear me not just bashing humanity or bashing you or, um, or stoking the fires of your own guilt, but saying that His property is always to have mercy. That he meets us at the end of our rope. That's, that's where we are. And when we, when we discover that, it just, it's, it's like a, a just sparks of fire in our hearts. All right, so the big question then, why were they coming to John? Because he's the wild man in the wilderness. He's got bad breath, all this stuff. Why are they coming out to him? And it seems from verse 5 that uh, there has been this some sort of move of God. Now remember, the Holy Spirit doesn't come for everybody until... Uh, Pentecost, and yet there seems to be this movement of God that all Jerusalem was actually repenting. They were seeing their own unworthiness. 
Uh, but they had nowhere to go, really, except to try to get better. Because it was a religion of law, not grace. And baptism was this washing away, but it was also a, a, of their sins, but also a renewal of sorts, it, because it's what non-Jews would do in order to become Jews. It was a ceremonial washing. That's how they became. And here we have a, a hint or a foretaste of, of death and resurrection. Because these Jews are coming and saying, count me as a non-Jew starting over again. They are asking, uh, they're recognizing the unworthiness and asking for their sins to be washed away. They have a longing to be made clean and restored. But just interesting, I mean, I tell you what, I, I, don't, I don't, you wouldn't get very far as an Episcopal priest anyway if you, if you preach like uh, John the Baptist. Although there's good reason to, to believe that he was uh, not a Baptist, but he was actually an Episcopalian. But we'll see that. Um, when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! This was actually my first passage uh, when I came, uh, Advent, Advent 3, uh, six years ago, when I came to be your rector. This was the first passage. You brood of vipers. <laughs> Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that therefore does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He has Pharisees and Sadducees coming uh, to his ministry. He has uh, conservatives and progressive both coming uh, together in the same place. So that's why I said maybe he's not a Baptist, maybe he's an Episcopalian. And he says, you brood of vipers. What is a brood? We know what a viper is. What's a brood? It's a they, they mingle together. It's a family, yeah. right? It's a family. Like, so, yeah, it's a, it's a bunch. It's a bunch. You know, we, they don't have families like we, snakes aren't family. They have bunches and bunches. But it's a, it's, a, it's a family. You family of aggressive snakes. Why would he say that? He says... He says, bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. Because whether the progressive or, or, or conservative, whether the Pharisees were the conservatives, they were the ones that held people to the standard of law. Man, they were, they were the moral police, right? The Sadducees were more progressive. They didn't really believe in, they believed, certainly believed in God, but they were essentially humanists. They were the sort of, had believed in the watchmaker God. You know, they wanted people to, to act according to the commandments, but they didn't uh, really, they didn't believe in a resurrection um, they didn't believe that the Messiah was coming. They just kind of just believed we were supposed to be good people. And, um, and so the Pharisees and Sadducees were all often having these conversations uh, about the, the spiritual side of, of things. But they're both coming because they both feel this empty, the emptiness of what, um, what they're doing because neither can keep the law. Um, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. How ironic would it be if they were coming for a baptism of repentance, but they just hung that baptism of repentance on their on their existing dead tree like an ornament, another badge of, of another way to pat themselves on the back. I got baptized with John, and I got the t-shirt to prove it. You know, like just um, that would uh, he he is warning them that this will just be another religious act for them. That it will be another means of sacrifice that they can put on their resume and prove to God, rather than that they're actually coming at the end of the rope. 
Now, it's actually a pretty reasonable warning because they didn't know any difference. I don't think. But repentance is actually the key to new life. Death and resurrection, not reform. Because you never have you reformed enough. If you trust not at all in our own merits, our own works, our own goodness, again, that doesn't mean you're not a great person. It just means we're not worthy before God. We don't trust in our own worthiness, but we trust in His worthiness imputed to us. That's, that is the replacement of the, of the bush, of the tree. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down. What kind of trees bear bad fruit? Bad trees. He's not saying, all right, bad trees become good trees. He's saying, all right, die and let Christ live in you. Let me ask you, is judgment good news or bad news? Good Good news. Good news. Be bad good, news. Wouldn't it be good news because that's when you're going to see the fruits? Would judgment be good news because you're going to see the fruits? I don't know. I mean, I do know, but I don't know. Well, it's not going to be good for those that aren't repentant. It's not going to be good for those. It's not good news for those who aren't repentant. Now we're getting somewhere. That's right. Yeah. It's definitely both. Definitely bad news, and that's pretty obvious. You know, it's pretty obvious for those who insist on. Uh, looking at their own worth and merit, um, insist on their own goodness. I mean, some people, just, they don't like to think about what used to be, and they just, they want to insist on, I'm worthy in Christ. I mean, God sees me as worthy. You know, I'm not, I don't mean to split hairs about that. But I think the, good, the judgment is good news in the sense that uh, it, it's one way we know we can trust God. He says it's going to happen, and it happens like we know we can trust Him. He's a, he is a God of His word. But it's also, and in fact, this is much more important, I think, that God will judge injustice. We don't want a God who just winks at injustice and says, ah, all is forgiven. We want a God who cares deeply about right and wrong and about the hurts that people endure at the hands of other people. We need a God who looks at something and says, that is wrong, and I will deal with it. Right? Think of the hopelessness of a world in which... little g God and he just winks at all sin and all rape and murder and oppression and slavery and says, oh, let's forgive it. What kind of God would we be? We would not follow that God. The problem is when we become those who have oppressed. When we become the transgressor. And we actually are both, aren't we? We are the, in in some ways, we are those who have um, been sinned against and we are those who have sinned. God has forgiven, but the price has been paid. That's the, that's the miracle of grace. That God took the price that we deserve um, of the injustices that we have perpetrated. And he took that upon himself. He doesn't weaken sin. And so we can trust his goodness. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John is saying, uh, make sure that you are working from his strength and not your own. That you are in a relationship with a living God, not a religion of dead works. And he says he's coming to separate the wheat from the chaff, right? The wheat is repentant. Um, not the, not, the wheat is not the, the sin-free among us. There, are, there is no sin-free among us. The wheat it falls back to the floor. Meaning a wintering fort is when you pick it up and the wind blows the little parts of the chaff away, but the wheat falls back. And the chaff... Uh, is um, blown away because it takes repentance as another badge of honor. 
And, G and John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he is coming after me. He is mightier than I. He's not worthy. His sandals are not worthy to untie. All right, so it, uh, we've got five minutes, and I need to talk about uh, Jesus getting baptized. Um, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, you should be baptizing me, um, not me baptizing you. Jesus said, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he came up out of the water. Behold, the heavens were opened. He saw the Spirit of God, the Father, descending like a dove, and the Spirit uh, coming to rest on him, the Son. So you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Trinitarian presence. And behold, a voice from heaven, the Father, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Why was Jesus baptized? He was without sin. He didn't need to repent. Or did he? What, what, why is Jesus being baptized in a baptism of repentance? Came to be a man. He spent 33 years before he started his ministry. Who knows? Well, Hebrews said, I mean, I, I would, I, I, the book of Hebrews definitely says he faced every temptation that we face and yet was without sin. Um, I, I hold to the, the full life of sinlessness of Jesus, um, personally. Say again. I believe that Jesus was sinless his entire life. Yes. I'm just going to say, I see it more as a way of, it's like a way of starting fresh for a kid because he's actually starting his active ministry. He's starting his active ministry. And he's, so it's kind of a, it's a starting point. Yes. It's the inauguration yeah. of his ministry. Was the Spirit with him before this? Uh, yes, but not like this. Right. And so the Spirit is upon him. And God's promise over him is that we are bound to one another. This is my beloved son. With him I'm well pleased. And for you, dear ones, and for me, if we are in Christ, the same thing is said over you and me. In our baptism, you are my beloved son, you're my beloved daughter, and with you I am well pleased. Not on your own. Remember, end of our road. But by grace, you are looked at and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Um, it, is, it is a remarkable thing um, that outside of Christ, we're brood of vipers. But inside of Christ, enveloped by His grace, caged by His grace, we are the bride of Christ. We are uh, the son and sons and daughters of God the Father. Um, he is aligning himself. It is the inauguration of his ministry, and yet is also, I think, the alignment of Jesus with sinners. He is redeeming even those of us who come to baptism for the wrong reasons. That he's made it right. And so when he's crucified all of the sin of the world, even wrong religious motivation, uh, is crucified. All right. I gotta go to church, but I got two minutes. You got any any uh, comments or questions? Things? Yes, Wayne. You were talking about this judgment. The thing I was thinking about is accountability. 
thinking about today, nobody wants to be accountable for anything. And I think that's why you know, see about a lot fewer Christian in the world believers. And, and it just it just struck me. When someone, I've said this before, when someone says, hey, brother, I want to speak the truth to you in love, um, the best thing to do is run, uh, typically. Um, if you want to be held accountable by your brothers and sisters in Christ, then I would say you should thank God because that is an act of the Spirit. It is not, I don't think, anything unique to this day and age that people these days don't want to be uh, held accountable. I don't think anybody wants to be held accountable. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, is, it is a good thing. Accountability is a good thing. Um, I want you all to, um, you know, I would, I hope that I, if you see sin in my life, that you would speak to it. But, but it, I mean, accountability is a dangerous, can be a dangerous thing. Most people start out in accountability groups and it lasts about a month. <laughs> um, yes, Emily. Just a quick question. Okay. Um, I want to make sure that my hearing was right. Um, early on in our discussion. You mentioned something about Nazarite, and, and, yes. and the Nazarite is not supposed to drink wine. That's correct. Where did you find that one from? Yes, so Emily's question for those online is that, um, that uh, I said earlier he was a Nazarite. It says in Luke that he was not to drink wine, and, um, and there's a couple other Nazarite vows. I can't tell you the address of where they are, but you can Google it, the Nazarite vow. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with where, from being from Nazareth, as far as I can tell. Uh, but Samson was also a Nazarite, and Samuel, I think, was a Nazarite. And um, but it just—it was a particular setting apart. Now Samuel, actually Samuel, John, and um, and Samson were all Nazarites from birth. They didn't make their own vows; they had vows made on their behalf. Samuel and John seemed to be good to those vows. Samson, not so much. All right. What else? Anything? What the, what, you mentioned the um, the James and Kings. What were the um, numericals with those again? I don't know. I understand your what, question. You said you had um, Connie's well, husband. Second Kings chapter one is where it describes Elijah. And what was Second James? Was there a second? Uh, there is no such second. No Second James. <laughs> and then Isaiah one through. 40. Isaiah 40, yeah, 1 through 5. Thank you. Verse 3 is the one where it says, prepare the way. Okay, thanks. All right, friends, go to church if you haven't been. Go cheer on the Jaguars. Yeah. Otega, food truck flyer, food truck flyers.